Hello and welcome to the Politic Podcast, the only series about the Ward 1 Alder election in New Haven, Connecticut. My name is Anthony K. Ruse, and I'm joined today by Maddie Colbert. Hey, everyone. And Simone Seaver. Hi, everyone. In this week's episode, entitled The Guardian of Ward 1, we'll have a conversation with Amalia Halikius, the former campaign manager of Ugana Eze's campaign, and we'll conclude, of course, with our rumor mill. And just a quick note to the listeners, next week we will be bringing on a couple of people in Sarah's campaign to hear their perspective as well. So welcome, Amalia, to the Politic Podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's really exciting. Have you heard us before? I have. I'm actually an avid fan. I've listened to every single really? one. Really? Thank you. <laughs> oh, man, high stakes. What was your favorite part of it? Um, well, this is going to sound really partisan, but I like it when you ask Sarah questions and there's a 30-second pause. Oh, well. Well, we have questions for you as well. You better not pause for 30 seconds. We'll yeah. be timing. Yeah. We'll Pressure be timing. is high. Oh, man. So the, the first thing, just to give the listeners some background, you were the press secretary for Paul Chandler's campaign, which for those of you who don't know, Paul Chandler was a Republican candidate who ran two years ago. And in your senior year, you graduated last year, you were the campaign manager for Uganda's campaign. And I was curious how these two campaigns have been different. Which one seems more promising? Do you think this one will be better than Paul Chandler? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. They're miles apart, um, in part because in a local election, the candidate is 90%, if not more, of the race. And when you're talking about Paul and Agunna, who are both great guys, uh, they're just, like I said, they're miles apart. So uh, Paul's a likable guy. Uh, he was really involved in certain groups on campus. He was a varsity athlete, so he had a really tightly knit community in that sense. Um, but he didn't have a lot of the connections that Agunna has. And uh, looking at what I would call polling, but I guess... Real, real publications would probably call me asking my friends and uh, <laughs> and uh, and just like a general feel of campus. I think it's pretty clear that Agana has these like personal connections that actually come through. And um, that coupled with the fact that I think the campaign strategy itself is pretty different is is going to amount to a much more promising campaign. So you said a person is 90 percent of the campaign or perhaps of the election. Do you mean to say that 90 percent of what ultimately determines whether someone is elected is their character and their personality um yeah, I, more like their um their their presence yeah on on campus is determined or sorry their presence in the district would be determined by their personality um so in a national election or a state election say a governor's race uh you have polling numbers you have people who are like coaching the candidates and there's none of that in a local race right we're talking about a ward here with four thousand potential voters um it's possible for a candidate to meet every single one of those leading up to a campaign. So uh, the candidate, more than in any other type of election in a local race, a candidate is able to shape his own perception on campus. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because my perception of Ward 1 has always been that because it's so deeply democratic, the thing that we would say is the most important perhaps measure or determinant of whether someone's going to win is purely their party, you know, their party. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly makes sense. Uh, it's simply the case, I think, that in recent years, there haven't been many Republican challengers. It's like an outlier that the past two races have had one. Uh, my understanding is it usually breaks down along the Democratic establishment candidate versus a farther left candidate. And uh, my freshman year, that was the um, Vinay Nayak versus Sarah Idelson race. 
What do you personally think uh, Ugana can do to overcome this, I guess, stigma on a very Democratic campus about being a registered Republican in this kind of race? Yeah, why on earth did he not just run as an independent? Okay, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, so when I first found out that Ugana was running, um, he like came and chatted with me about his options because I was you know, a vet from Chandler. And I told him to run as an independent. And he said no. And that was like, a heart-wrenching moment for me because like oh my god but you'd be so perfect as an independent um and his reasoning was really simple he said look i am a republican and i might disagree with the republicans on the national level but um i identify this way and he has like i mean we're talking about a guy who knows philosophy up the wazoo so he mm-hmm. had really great reasons that i couldn't really come back against um but it's, it's not really about strategy for him. There are certainly some strategic benefits. So, for example, he'd be the minority leader. He'd get one on one time. Which is crazy because that's currently Sarah. Yeah. Fight Majority over and minority leader seat. are Democrats. <laughs> it's just like Little a battle over this one seat. It's wild. Yeah. This is a little taste of uh, the level of corruption and weird monopoly that exists. You think in that's corruption? Politics. Explain that. Totally. Um, basically, my read on the situation is... Uh, The Democratic establishment is owned by the local unions, and I don't mean this in a partisan sense because clearly there are some Democrats whom I do support, and there are even Democrats who are backed by the unions who I like. So, for example, uh, I wasn't in Ward 1. I lived in Silliman College, so I never even had the option to vote for Chandler or Ghana, any of these people. Um, But my older was Jeanette Morrison, and in my second week on campus, Jeanette Morrison knocked on my door and introduced herself and wasn't invasive and didn't send someone else to do her work for her, and I liked her. And even though her policy platform is verbatim, the same of that as uh, Sarah Idelson, uh, whose candidacy I've opposed in the past and still oppose today, and Ella Wood, who ran two years ago, um, I liked Jeanette. And I've voted for Jeanette two elections in a row, even though she was a Democrat and I was a Republican. Um, And the reason that I say that it's corrupt is because the way that the unions work is when someone runs against a union challenger, uh, the tactics that they use are pretty underhanded. And uh, if someone breaks from the union line, and we're talking about Democrats here because the Board of Alders is 100% Democrats right now. If any of them breaks from the union line, and there was a coalition two years ago, they run their own candidates against the sitting Democratic incumbents. Um, And uh, the best example of this, probably two years ago, the union's uh, encouraged someone, Ella Wood, who was a current Yale student, to break her lease, to move into a different ward, and to run against a sitting incumbent who had recently come out against them. Um, She lost the election, and then the guy who won, who opposed the unions, was mysteriously promoted within the Democratic ranks. Very strange. Very strange. (laughs) That's wild. Sorry, guys. Awkward (laughs) silence of shock. (laughs) I mean, it's just a very involved theory that you have there yeah i mean so i mean the wording that i've used before is that um I, i'm really trying to make clear this isn't partisan in a traditional sense i would say that uh the unions in new haven do a lot of similar things to what the nra does in tennessee and i'm curious do you think that the ward one alder should be a representative primarily involved in new haven or should serve the interests of the yale students this is something that we asked sarah sarah very much saw an importance in new haven um do you think the alder or do you differ on that point 
I, I kind of think it's a false question. There's this artificial town and gown divide. And what people don't realize is every time we say that phrase and every time we talk about Yale versus New Haven, we reinforce it. Um, every Yale student lives in New Haven. Every Sorry, every Yale student lives in New Haven. Um, every Yale student is a member of the New Haven community. Every Yale student is a citizen. Um, minus the ones who aren't, <laughs> of course. But every every American who lives in uh, Ward 1 is a citizen who can vote and exercise that right. And um, the idea that policies somehow don't affect us because we're walled off from the community is only true insofar as we continue to wall ourselves off from the rest of the community. I think the point that people usually make is not that we aren't, that students on campus aren't unaffected by the policies of the <laughs> Ward 1 alder or the alders as a body at large, but more that the interest of a student who's 18 years old, who's going to class and doing extracurriculars is just so fundamentally different from someone who is employed full time, living in New Haven, probably not making great wages. Um, I think that's the criticism that people usually have and the evidence they pose to suggest a town and gown divide. What do you think about that? I think it's a real concern, and I think it stems in part from the fact that we have what we would colloquially call a Yale ward or a Yale district. I, I don't think the problem is that people uh, don't like it when Yale students vote for whomever they think is best for their communities. I think people have a problem um, with the fact that they see a Ward 1 alder as having the option to lobby for Yale interests, which are adverse to New Haven interests. Um, and I mean, it's an interesting philosophical question whether it would be like the morally right thing to do to redistrict and maybe have like a non-Yale majority ward. Um, But at the end of the day, people are citizens of this country. We live in a representative democracy and people have and should exercise the right to vote. I know you've self-proclaimed yourself the guardian of Ward 1. Even though you did not live in Ward 1. Even though you didn't live in Ward 1, and you went to a few of Sarah Idelson's office hours, and you wrote these pretty funny emails in which you recounted your time at which you were at these office hours. So I'm going to read a quick quote for our listeners from one of those emails. And it says, this is 1.45 p.m. The Guardian of Ward 1 suspects the low turnout at Sarah Idelson's office hours may be related to the fact that Blue State on Wall is located on the literal border of Wards 1 and 22 during a time when many Ward 1 constituents are busy. Kind of like holding elections on Tuesdays, but worse, am I right? <laughs> and So who's were these emailed to? I also have been confused. It just Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, so actually these emails were a continuation of something that I started as press secretary on the Chandler campaign, mm. where I would ironically send out false uh, press releases only internally to the campaign. And there would be a disclaimer. Yeah. Um, and so these were emails that I only sent originally to the Paul Chandler like Google group. And so it's kind of a throwback type of thing. Like, hey, this person who we opposed, who beat us, is oh, not doing yeah. her job. <laughs> um, and then as they gained popularity, I thought it'd be funny to send a couple of them around. So I sent some to Anthony, some to actually some of my friends in the Dems. Yeah. <laughs> Did Sarah ever pick up on your presence at Blue State repeatedly? <laughs> yeah, was she like, this girl stalking me? <laughs> but won't ask any questions. <laughs> well, I mean, you'd have to ask her. <laughs> um, Shut up. The first time she she and I definitely made eye contact, and that's because I wasn't physically in Blue State. The first time I was standing across the street, and that is exactly as creepy as it sounds. So I was at one of the gates outside of my residential college, and I was meeting a friend, and 
I my friend was late because you know classic Yale, and I started staring because like this person who's supposed to be you know the representative of so many of my friends is just sitting there. Her laptop's up in front of her. She's a stack of books on the other side, and she's eating a sandwich and she's on her phone. And I was like, "What is happening?" Um, and so my friend joined me, and she actually was also shocked. And we stood there for forty five minutes and watched Sarah Idelson. Wow. Yeah. So we made eye contact, but uh, I don't know. Maybe she may know you. That's a crazy <laughs> thing shocking to see. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. That's wild. And so obviously you have some grievances about Sarah Idelson. You can also talk and say many good things about Ugana. But I'm curious for those going to the polls on November 3rd, which is the election day. Why should we not cast a vote for Sarah Idelson? At the end of the day, when you have an incumbent of two terms, the most important thing that a voter can do is not vote for her policies, not vote for her face, not vote for any sort of weird social interaction they've had, but to vote on her track record. And when you have a challenger, it's really hard to find something to match that. But if if a voter is displeased with Sarah Idelson's track record, they should not cast a vote for her on Election Day. What specifically in her track record would you point to as why someone should not vote for Sarah on November 3rd? Uh, well, I think the biggest problem is just a lack of relationships in the community. Um, to put it bluntly, I think that she uses the L community and uh, it's kind of a slap in the face to uh, the institution of a representative democracy, which is something that I take seriously. So it's not just a sense that you should amass power and then try and go out and do good in the world. Plenty of people do that. Um, and you could even argue on a federal level, that makes a little bit more sense. You're more of a public figure. But on a local level, a critical part of your job is to connect every single one of your constituents to the events that are going on around them, to introduce them to the leaders that can you know, connect them and have them do activism in the community in whatever areas they're interested in. And that's something that she simply has not done. No one knows who she is. In terms of her policies, are there things you object to or find you would tell a Yale student, hey, take a look at that. That, that is an issue. We should, we should look at that more closely. I think probably the biggest problem is the discrepancy between her policies and her actions. So um, there is no formal stance on budgeting, for example. It's something that they kind of decide year to year. So it's not available on her website, a formal stance on what the New Haven budget should be. Uh, But the way that they've spent the outrageous amount of money they spent on out-of-state consultants, the way that they allowed the Q House, which is a community center, to languish after it was a critical part of their campaign platform. And I say they because, again, a lot of these platforms were verbatim to the T, to the every single aspect exactly the same um the q house remains you know not usable to this day two years after after many campaign promises and millions of dollars spent on it so uh so even though that aspect is not included in their platform their actions speak much louder than their words uh issue that's come up a couple times in the debate is the question of should the word one alter be a yale student or not do you have any particular opinion on that or do you think it's not important uh, I think given the way that the word exists right now, where it's, what, 90 to 95% Yale students, mm-hmm. I can't change that. Per- that like 80 change. something. Oh, 80%. Yeah, I think it's in the high 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so given that percentage, uh, I think it, it it's natural that a Yale student would be the representative. But if it's not a Yale student, which is totally possible and even okay to me, it has to be someone who is involved in some way in the community. And like I said, Jeanette Morrison knocked on my door, introduced herself. My sweet mate certainly knew who she was, and they weren't politically involved at all. Um, that's someone who is deserving of a Yale student's vote, even though she's not one of us. And in the Democratic primary, Sarah crushed Fish um, in, when they tallied up the votes. I don't think many people were expecting that until the results came out. 
does that concern you for this general election that it looked for so long like Fish had this nomination and at the very end he got it taken away from him in a huge way? Yeah. So I think it made two things clear. One is that there is a powerful machine on campus and we've all interacted with it and it's knocked on all of our doors. And it's the means by which these anonymous students and some people who like are in no way affiliated with our community knock on our doors and kind of like morally shame us into registering to vote and like harass us and stand outside the bathroom while we run in there to to get away from them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. So that's one thing is there's a an insane operation on the Democrat side. And I'm sure the people that you bring next week will talk about how that's grassroots. It's not that spreadsheet that they have that they come around with that was purchased by the local Democratic um, committee. And it's given to Yale students for the explicit purpose of turning out the vote. So that's one thing is there's there's this insane machine. Um, And the other thing is that Fish really cost himself a ton of voters by being overly aggressive with canvassing and um, by being generally (laughs) off-putting. And uh, I think that Fish is a nice guy in and of himself. But I think that there was a huge public perception on campus that he was too pushy and at least amongst my friends, there was a sense that a vote for Sarah was not just a vote for Sarah, but actually a vote against Fish. Uh, that is something that I think Ugun has really tried to move away from. I know that he's not sending anyone to door knock for him. He's only doing it himself. And I think he's seen really positive results because of that. What is Ugana doing other than canvassing to prepare for this upcoming election? Um, well, he's held a number of extremely successful public events. Um, he's held them kind of around policy ideas. So Fish Stark held a rally that I think was pretty well attended early in the year. But it was kind of just a rally for rally's sake, uh, kind of taken from the professional politician playbook, if you will. Um, Ugunas have centered around his three columns, his three pillars of his policy, um, which are homelessness, education, and security or crime. And um, and he's he's been you know, very aggressive about trying to get people to seriously think about that. I believe for one of the events, I wasn't on campus, of course, uh, but for one of the events, he like asked every student to fill out an idea of one way that your average Yale student could help alleviate homelessness in the community and like put it in the idea box. And he's actually incorporated some of those into his policy. So Amalia, I've actually been to two of those events so far. And from my understanding, they were not publicized very widely. Um, There were some people from the campaign invited their friends. It was on old campus, so people who walked by could join. But there weren't posts in Facebook groups groups about them. There wasn't a lot of push to have people come and hear these policy ideas. Is there a reason why the campaign took that approach? I'm not really sure that that was a formal approach that the campaign took. I mean, I was invited to the events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I, th- I think what you're talking about is a, a real disadvantage that the Uganda as a campaign has, which is simply put that they're the underdogs and they don't have the political network so they can't email out and tell everyone to come. I do think that the decision to not post and say Yale ideas, Yale political discussions and all of the individual class Facebook groups, those types of things. I do think that those were conscious decisions that the campaign probably made because like I said, they thought that other candidates had been off-putting. They don't want to alienate people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think is a good strategy when you're running a campaign on Yale at Yale in general? Because you've been a veteran of so many of these. (laughs) Is there any one move? Amalia also (laughs) ran two YCC presidential campaigns. (laughs) Wow. Which ones? Uh, Michael Herbert's and Joe English's. So the last two presidents. Um, I would say... Well, I talked already about the importance of picking the right candidate. But let's say that the candidate is a given. 
I think probably the most important thing is getting as many representative people from different activities or social groups um, to join the actual team. And so when push comes to shove, they can email their panelists, they can tell their friends to turn out. And I think that that's a model that Uganda is trying to follow. So changing gears for a minute, something that's come up a lot in this debate has been the question of whether the Ward 1 uh, position on the Board of Alders is a springboard for future political office. Uh, Fish was widely criticized for perhaps fairly, perhaps unfairly, using this position or whether he, if he'd gotten the position as a means to pursue further office. Uh, we asked Sarah Idelson whether she would be considering uh, further candidacies, and she said no. So I'm wondering whether you can speak to whether Ugana has any position on that, whether he will be, uh, whether he views this as just one part of a future political career. I don't think that Ugana has a formal stance on that. Um, I'd have to ask him just to be sure. The campaign certainly hasn't made any sort of formal statement. Um I do think that with regard to Sarah Idelson, when asked if she was going to run again, if she wins this time, she said that you'd have to ask her in a couple years. And so I would actually count that as pursuing a career in politics, albeit local politics. Um, yeah, I think for Gunna, he came to this campus. He didn't want to be older. He didn't think about the political system the same way that someone who, say, was raised in a political family or works for a special interest group might. Um he just saw a community and he joined it. And I think once the problems revealed themselves to him, he decided to run. So, Okay, great. Amalia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank today. you so much. It was wonderful sharing your expertise <laughs> of campaigns with all of us. I'm sure everyone would love to hear it. Guys, thanks so much for having me. I, I really miss campus. <laughs> oh, she gets to return to warm Florida. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she gets to return to Florida, but we get to start our rumor mill. <laughs> Rumor mill. <laughs> okay, so I have the rumor for this week. I please go. I'm I, jealous. I feel like I usually have the rumor. I've got the rumor. Always been Anthony. It has always been Anthony. So we're gonna change it up. So the past few weeks have been running to East Rock. It's been you know pretty nice, savoring the nice weather. So athletic. Well, wow. I, it's been good. And I, as on on many of my runs, I keep running into people I think I know, and I think it's Sarah Idelson. I keep seeing people with pixie cuts. In that area, and I—is it ever Sarah Idelson? It has never been Sarah Idelson. So, what do I think's happened? Fake Sarah. Fake Sarahs. <laughs> we have there were some fake, fake Sarahs at the beginning of the year, and now we have fake Sarahs. It's just like Ward One is infiltrating it's our confusing. brains. Yeah, is that a trend? It's a politic podcast. It's like thing. a sartorial thing. Like people are looking at the Ward One candidates for their fashion choices. <laughs> everyone's wearing reefers. Everyone's yeah, wearing reefers. Everyone's getting pixie cuts. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. Maddie, are you going to get that haircut? I don't know. <laughs> Stay tuned, yeah. everyone. We'll do it on the show. Yeah, we, we just see her next week. Reefers <laughs> and a pixie cut. Totally different. Yeah, Maddie. I don't know what Uganda's thing. Well, I'll start rapping. Yeah. Now, hopefully, I don't. You know, go that crazy. That would be embarrassing for me. So do we have any other rumors or is that it? I think that might I be it. zero rumors, guys. So then for this next week, when you're out on your runs, be looking out for people in pixie cuts. But that brings us to the end of our episode. Woo! Thank you so much for listening. My name's Anthony Carews. I'm Maddie Colbert. I'm Simone Siever. And once again, special shout out to Phoebe Petrovic for producing the podcast, Michael May for the music, and WYBC for the studio. And thanks for listening to the Politic Podcast. See you guys next week. <laughs>